0: What do we need to unlearn in order to create more equitable and inclusive classrooms? And how do we do that? What kinds of norms in higher education are actually barriers to marginalized learners? Are there any steps we can take right away in our classes to address injustice? These are some of the questions we will address in this episode of Learner Engagement Activated the podcast that helps you take teaching and learning to the next level with the latest in research and applications on learner engagement for students at all ages, levels, and environments. I'm your host, Anne Fenzi, and in this episode, I speak with Ariel Rogers, learning scientists of higher education studying racialization in university classrooms and how faculty learn to become equity-minded in their pedagogy. Ready, set, Activate! Dr. Ariel Rogers is an assistant professor of higher education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Drawing on frameworks from critical race studies and the learning sciences, Ariel's scholarship seeks to illuminate how people's everyday misunderstandings about race and racism shape learning across various higher education ecologies. She uses qualitative techniques to study faculty development programs graduate student socialization processes, and classroom teaching and learning to better understand how educators can facilitate learning that advances critical race consciousness for faculty and students in post-secondary education. So I am so excited to welcome Ariel to our uh, podcast. Thank you, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, so since this is a podcast about learner engagement, let's talk uh, about that first. What is What does the term learner engagement mean to you?
1: Yes, thank you. I think one of the things that I really love about the term um, learner engagement is that it evokes thoughts about Paulo Freire's um, problem-posing education rather than the banking model, right? The idea of um, engaging uh, students, but also engaging ourselves as educators even, um, is, is really important such that the learning that we do, we do together in an engaged way rather than uh, a unidirectional way uh, where we are positioned uh, or we position ourselves uh, as the ones with the knowledge that we're pouring into someone else, but recognizing that actually, no, we are all learners in the space that are engaging with each other in a variety of different uh, ways and modalities such that we're all growing uh, as, as both subject matter as experts, but also as people in our disciplines, people in our social world. So those are some of the thoughts that I have about learner engagement.
0: Mm, and I am I love that you brought up prayer, that it sounds like you're thinking of the word engagement as like removing some of that, that power that often happens in a traditional classroom setting where the, the teacher is in control of everything, you know, and they distribute the knowledge to students who are just, their job is to receive.
1: Yeah, and I think the um, the thing about power, particularly within our socio-cultural context is that power exists, right? Uh, and we have to name that. I think what I'm thinking about is what, what possibilities for learning might be made more possible if mm-hmm. what we did was actually recognized The way Mm -hmm. that power functions within various social contexts like classrooms and then actively work to redistribute power in those spaces such that we're not hoarding it to Mm -hmm. ourselves. Right. And we're not taking it for granted. But what would it mean to actively get to know our students such that they have power in what it is that we do together as a learning community, uh, and they have a say, a real say and a stake in that. I think that sometimes conversations with power, because it's uncomfortable to talk about privilege and power that in many ways is unearned (laughs) that people have, Mm -hmm. um, people end up shying away. It's like, no, let's not necessarily... Talk about that. We're just gonna say that there's no power in the room, but of course there's power in the room, oh. right? And we have to attend to that um, and design for that specifically. I think a lot of my a lot of my intellectual pursuits are around like given you know the issues of structural power, um, privilege, oppression. How do we design learning environments such that? We are taking into account those things and designing away from them right? Hmm. intentionally rather than leaving it kind of up to chance that we do work in more justice-oriented ways.
0: Yeah. Okay. So speaking of your intellectual pursuits, so you've done already quite a bit of research um, focused around diversity, equity, inclusion, um, justice at traditionally white institutions of higher education. So what are what are some things that, that you found in your research?
1: Yes, I think one thing that uh, is really important to name is that racialization or the ways in which we make meaning uh, collectively and we reproduce meanings of race in discourse, interaction in our social world, racialization is part and parcel of the learning that we do, right? So even when We never say the word race, Mm -hmm. there are particular racial meanings that are associated with a lot of the ways that we are making sense of the subject matter learning that we're doing as well as the socialization processes that we are engaging students in. So, for example, in uh, work that I've done with my advisor and friends and colleagues on uh, my advisor, uh, Dr. Julie Passelt's research team has been thinking about racialized legitimation, right? And what the ways in which we legitimate graduate students, whether that be through the qualifying exam process, whether that be through classroom learning and, and work that I've done in my dissertation, mm-hmm. often reflect particularly racialized and racist Mm -hmm. (laughs) norms that are prevalent in the academy. And so really thinking about and taking seriously the ways that some of the normative socialization processes themselves reproduce particular ideas Mm -hmm. about race and racism is really deeply important. Another important uh, thing to highlight teaching matters in higher education, right? (laughs) I always say that my villain origin story uh, with my research is being uh, an administrator in the graduate school uh, at Northwestern University at the uh, Office of Diversity and Inclusion. And what I noticed in that work was that we had a lot of purview to be able to provide kind of co-curricular supports for students of color uh, as they were engaging in their doctoral studies but when it came to curricular supports we couldn't touch that that was like the academic side that was the faculty side right but a lot of the experiences of violence of isolation of trauma that our students were having were in classrooms right and I remember we hosted a workshop for graduate students on how to deal with imposter syndrome. And I remember being livid because I'm like, they're not the point of intervention here, right? We should not teach people how to deal with imposter syndrome. We actually need to train faculty on how to not make people feel like imposters in places they objectively (laughs) have earned their right to be in. right? If we're talking, even if there's a way to earn your right to be in a place like this, right?
0: Yeah, so, my my advisor does, like, hazing, Elizabeth Allen does hazing research, but also uh, in a lot of feminist work, and she was talking about, like, why do we teach, you know, freshman orientation, we teach young women about, you know, the blue lights on campus, and yes. how to prevent yourself from getting sexually assaulted, why don't we have in the freshman orientation for men about, okay, how do you not sexually assault a woman? <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that, to me, that raised a question fundamentally about teaching and learning. Mm. Who is the who are the objects, right? of like where we are pointing <laughs> our uh, learning interventions? And are those actually are those the people that actually uh, need to be called in in this way, right? So that's really how I got interested in the learning sciences and thinking about, issues of race, racism, and racialization in higher education, teaching and learning writ large, right? It, it, one of the things I think is really important to also name is that learning happens everywhere, right? I'm a I'm a socioculturalist <laughs> when it comes to um, how I think about issues of, of learning and from, you know, really beloved and trusted femtors like Shireen Vasugi, Maxine McKinney-DeRoyston, Paula Hooper, like have taught me really to think about learning as being something we do everywhere all the time. And so if what we are doing from my perspective, everywhere all the time is learning about race, right? And learning what race means in ways that promote particular understandings or promote particular misunderstandings, we need more empirical data about how that happens and under what conditions why, might we be able to do that in more critical and in more transformative ways.
0: Mm, yeah. So we don't, I don't think we have enough of that data yet to inform you know, what we're doing, but imagine that we did. So imagine like you get to decide how higher ed is created and so instead of changing the systems that we have now how would you construct a diverse and inclusive and just institution from the ground up like you got to create a brand new one what would it look like
1: that's a great question my initial response is that i would want to co-create that <laughs> with uh, <laughs> with students i think you know thinking back to learner engagement right and some of the literature and kind of public discourse around evaluation, teaching evaluations in mm-hmm. higher education. And I am a Black woman. I am a fat Black woman, particularly, which I think is notable to name, given mm-hmm. how fat phobia functions, given how anti-Blackness functions, given how misogynoir functions, right, within our social world. I know that teaching evaluations are racialized, are gendered, Uh, can be very problematic uh, and relying on them too heavily disproportionately harms people of color Mm -hmm. women and uh, non-binary people of color uh, and black people uh, particularly right and at the same time trying to figure out ways to trust that students know are or are coming to know what they want to learn and what they want to get out Mm -hmm. of their learning experience in higher education is deeply important. Now, do I think teaching evaluations as they exist now are the way to do that? Objectively, no. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) finding ways to like really deeply and intentionally thought partner with students around what they want their education to be uh, Mm -hmm. and who they want to become through their education is central to that. So I think that would be a huge part of redesigning the, the university. A second thing that comes to mind for me is also how are we doing more than land acknowledgements, right? If we're redesigning the university, we have to think geospatially Mm -hmm. about it as well. So that means moving beyond land acknowledgements to say, hey, folks, (laughs) how are we getting land back to indigenous peoples? And how are we in ethical and right relations with not only indigenous peoples on whose lands we've usurped, right, uh, for colonial educational pursuits, but also what are the surrounding communities that we are gentrifying, are pushing people out of, right? Like, And what does right relationships look like with them? And what do we as practitioners in the university setting have to learn from being Part of this broader community. Hmm. So, those are some things that I think a lot about because I, I, my work is definitely surrounding teaching and learning, but I think sometimes it gets kind of put into a box of classrooms and, yeah. you know, curriculum and all of that is so deeply important. And the ways that we are socializing students to think about themselves relative to the institution and relative to the histories that inform and reproduce the institution as it is that's deeply important uh in terms of a learning objective for me
0: Mm -hmm. so i've heard you mention active unlearning which to me sounds you know because you know learning sciences is is my bag too and like i love the idea of you know ways of knowing and structures of knowledge and for particularly, my my research population is adult learners, and we often have to do unlearning in adult learners who come with misconceptions and you know biases into the classroom. So what? But what do you mean about by active unlearning, and and how do we do that as as educators?
1: Yes, yes. When you approach me uh, to Engage in a conversation on the podcast, which again, I'm so honored uh, to be part of this conversation. The, the term active learning have, has always been really interesting to me. I think that a lot of times we as educators, as teachers create a list of learning objectives about things that we want our students to learn. Mm -hmm. That's good. And that's right. Yes. Let's be intentional about that. And (laughs) in a lot of contexts, the things that we want students are learn to learn i'm sorry is sometimes not appropriately historicized Mm -hmm. or uh, not appropriately placed into a broader historical context in which we're able to kind of understand the ways in which we arrive to the history or the the understandings of what it is that we're learning in that moment so actually what we do in terms of the learning objectives and the way that we present material to meet those learning objectives propagates particular problematic notions of the social world, right? We indoctrinate students into particular ideas about race, to particular ideas about power, into particular ideas even about positionality and relationality between who we are as folks in the ivory tower versus who folks outside of the ivory tower are, right? And so what is really powerful, I think, to me as a pedagogical imperative would be, in addition to having the things that you want students to learn, what are the things that you want students to unlearn about the things that we're learning together, right? Mm -hmm. What are the taken for granted pieces of knowledge of what even counts as knowledge of who are considered to be knowers or not that are forming the foundation of the learning that we're doing together, but like the air we breathe just gets taken for granted.
0: Do I understand this? I just, I'm an active learner. And <laughs> so uh, help me through this. If I, it's like, I say I, I teach pre-service teachers educational technology. So yeah, there are things I want them to learn, but I also want them to unlearn that they are the arbiters of knowledge and that their students are blank slates. And basically they can do the same thing to any student and it will have the same effect. Mm -hmm. And that's not true because each one of their students is an individual learner with their own backgrounds and cultures and histories and ways of knowing and their own, you know, identities and their own abilities and disabilities so they have to understand that learner that's like their most important job in the classroom is for them to understand that learner so that they understand the things that they're doing in the classroom what effect does that have on the students and hopefully a positive effect and hopefully the effect that you're you're hoping to achieve but am i understanding unlearning active unlearning right I
1: think that that I think that that could apply. I think something else that, you know, relative to educational technology for instance, I think about folks who have been really intentionally thoughtful about the ways that particular assumptions about even what is the purpose of using educational technology and AI in classrooms for instance right so there's a burgeoning scholar at Northwestern University uh, Charles Logan who's doing really great work critical work around the the ways in which educational technology platforms particularly things like proctoring actually can be problematic for a lot of students and serves as a form of surveillance for students so right if is the purpose of engaging particular, educational technology tools to surveil students to reproduce uh, an environment of crime and punishment to mm-hmm. assume that students are guilty until proven innocent like what are the things that are undergirding fundamentally how we think about the purpose of the tools we're the purpose of the tools and the purpose of the learning objectives we're doing together before we even get to how to use those tools right like <laughs>
0: Or it's a of up, yeah, it's interesting that you brought up AI because I think how people approach the conversation around AI and education tells a lot about their approach to teaching and learning, you know, so that the educators who are like terrified that, oh my God, all my students are going to be cheating and I won't know that they're cheating. Well, what does that say about you as an educator? You know, that you're making the assumption that your students are just there to game the system. And now they have an easy way to game the system and they've they've pulled one over on you and you don't want to you know, lose that amount of power that you have in that relationship with your students. So to me, I don't see that as, you know, this is an opportunity for you to cheat. I see this as this is an opportunity to explore and let's figure out together what can this A.I. do and what can't it do? and you know, if you want to use this to cheat, by all means, this is your education. And, you know, I'm just going to, you know, give you some ideas to think about in terms of why this might not be a good idea to use it in this way, because it's, you know, you're not, you're not really learning what I'm hoping that you'll learn from it, but it's up to you how you use this AI. You know, it's, I'm not in charge of you. I'm not controlling you. I'm just presenting, you know, these possibilities together.
1: Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to cheat, right? Like, you know, I even think about <laughs> one of the things that infuriates me most about things like qualifying exams or prelims things, mm-hmm. is that we'll never have to do an activity like that yes. <laughs> again in yes. academia. Like fundamentally, that does not map on to any other activity <laughs> that like any other consequential activity that academics have to do. So what is the learning objective there? Like what what is the purpose? What are we doing other than pressing students out? Yes. Yes. Other than hazing, Exactly. Exactly. And so again, thinking and thinking about the histories of the, you know, thinking about the histories of those artifacts, right? Like that's an Mm -hmm. artifact of academic social experience
0: where does that come from like qualifying exams you know who gets a leg up in the system because they're able to make it through that gate
1: exactly exactly and even with things there are certain aspects of for example if we continue with the qualifying exam and um, or even dissertations or conference proposal there's like the academic writing piece which itself can be very easily problematized but then there's also the presentation piece, right? And like in a study that we did recently with Black PhD candidates um, in the physical sciences and in education, one of the things that we found is that it wasn't just the academic piece that students felt like they were judged on, but it was the presentation piece as well, Mm -hmm. right? And not like, okay, how coherently are you expressing your ideas? It's like, Mm -hmm one student was uh, advised to maybe consider cutting uh their locks before their qualifying exam defense because that's perceived to be unprofessional um, right or in uh-huh. um a- a study I'm doing around personal statements uh, and Black women uh, Black women and femmes uh, narrative self-construction and personal statements with a dear friend uh, and colleague, uh, Martha Kakuza from um, Morgan State University. One of the things that we found was that the ways that blacks, Black women and femmes are coming to narrate themselves in those documents mm-hmm. are themselves artifacts of, a lot of times, overwhelmingly, are artifacts of what they think white people want to hear from Black women, right? And so it's all of these tools and artifacts are mediating particular types of understandings about race, particular types of understandings about merit and meritocracy and who deserves to be here and under what conditions, particular ideas about respectability, right? And what does it mean Mm -hmm. to earn, earn, quote unquote, respect and legitimation within academic contexts, and so all of this maps back onto to the learning that we're doing together in a variety of different spaces, because it's like, where do, these ideas don't just come from inside of us. They come from somewhere, right? People are actively learning this. And so how do we get people to pause and say, okay, you're going to have students write a personal statement. What is, why? What is that? How do we interpret that? What is this for? What is the prompt actually prompting people to think about, right? Yeah. Um, if we're doing qualifying exams, let's pause. Why? When do we do this? How does this make our students feel? Do we want our students to feel this way? If we are hazing students, do we want to haze our students? Wild idea, right? So like <laughs> so like unlearning yeah, the particular yeah. types of um, taking for granted notions that actually propagate violence against racially minoritized students and gender Um you know, students who are minoritized with regard to gender identity as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So this is such a complicated issue with like so many layers that so many of us just are, we don't have our eyes open to. So if someone, you know, just wanted to start to be more equitable in their classroom and more inclusive, like what is something that like I could do in my classroom right away to help me and my students unlearn our unconscious biases? Like, can you give me an example of like approaches or activities or things like that we could do?
1: Sure, I appreciate that question. I think that one thing that I'll say around the the idea of unconscious bias is that I wonder about the implications of even when unconscious, framing bias as unconscious because it sometimes allows for a particular type of innocence <laughs> to be, yeah, it, it allows for a particular type of innocence um, that-
0: Like it makes, it removes being complicit. And
1: I think sometimes it makes accountability hard because then people are like, well, I didn't know. And it's like, okay, sure. You didn't know, but- <laughs>
0: Yep now you do need to be so held accountable for unknowing
1: right or for not knowing right uh and so i think that that's one thing i think is really important is naming that there may all be things that we don't know because we're not going to know everything we we come to we come here to learn right like if you knew everything you probably shouldn't be here um <laughs> but at the same time having a framework for how we are going to engage each other as a learning community from jump is really important, right? So something that I do in my courses is that we have community commitments. So at the beginning of the course, We all come together, and and I have on my syllabus a particular statement around how we're going to engage with each other and systems of accountability for harm that's done in the space. Not only accountability, but loving accountability and hopefully reparation, right? But also that's something that I want to do with the learners that I am privileged to teach each semester. So having an opportunity for us to come together and say... Here are the commitments that we're making to each other this term. Here is how we wanna leave. This is here's how we wanna feel when we leave
0: mm-hmm.
1: the room every day, whether that's a Zoom room or physically leaving the room. Here is how we're gonna hold each other accountable, like when that doesn't happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Here is my responsibility and my, yeah, my responsibility to students, right? Like, what do you want to hold me accountable to as the facilitator of learning in the space, right? So I think that's that's one thing. I think another thing is really, that's really important is to think through some of the routine, but really pervasively racialized <laughs> aspects of the course that you're teaching. So for instance, what counts as knowledge or mastery, within the context of your course, right? And are those the things that actually matter for the learning objectives that you've set at the beginning of the course? So being intentional about making sure that there's alignment there, thinking about formative assessments and like how you use formative assessments in ways that are actually allowing for full participation for all of your students, full and meaningful participation for all of your students, and paying attention to which formative assessments might privilege or marginalize particular people in certain ways, right? And, or even uh, particular ways of knowing, going back to the first point I made. Another thing that you might think about it's also assessment practices. And what does your assessment practices mean for who you're considering knowers, like within the space. So like you have the design of the formal assessments, but then also as you're assessing those assessments, right? Or evaluating those assessments, uh, thinking about who is privileged there. And I think a really important piece also is constantly being critically reflective on your own teaching practices, because particularly within the context of research intensive universities, teaching is not always valued in the way, valued or honored in the, in the way that it should. For me, teaching is one of the most beautiful and sacred parts of my job. I think it is the deepest honor to be able to work with students um, in that way. And like, Anytime I see a light bulb go off a student, like my heart literally flutters, (laughs) like it makes me so happy. Um, But I also know that I'm always going to be growing as an educator and changing as an educator. And one thing that I do in my classes that I think worked out really well, and I learned this actually from um, two participants in my dissertation study. Uh, I did uh, ethnographic case study for my dissertation of three PhD level courses. So I was collecting data, but I was also like, oh, this is a cool pedagogical practice that I want to try. So yeah. that was really fun. But they did exit tickets for students. And so like at the end of each uh, class session, Um, they would send out a form and I do the same thing. I send out a form. I ask students, what's something that, you know, you really enjoyed about the class session? What's Mm -hmm. something that's still fuzzy, right? Or something that we might need to revisit from the last class session or what's something that didn't feel good or you want me to change? If there's a new tool that we're using, how did you feel about using this tool? Do you think that we should try something else moving forward? Like just trying to get feedback from students and then, I also ask a question, like an open-ended question, like what's something you want me to know, right? And I've gotten all types of responses from that. Like people have said, you know, I want you to know that I really liked your earrings today. Or I want you to know that this, I really like this particular reading. Or one student was like, I want you to know that I'm pregnant. And so when I go off camera, I'm likely having morning sickness. I don't want you to think I'm not paying attention, you know, things like that. So just having space for students to be in conversation. And then the next class session, again, something I learned from the participants in my dissertation study is really being accountable To telling students, like, I read this, and this is what I'm doing differently to respond to your feedback. So if you're going to invite feedback, you have to honor the folks who took their time to give you that feedback by actually implementing it meaningfully. So those are a few things.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because students fill out those end-of-course evaluations, and they're like, well, how do I know that they actually meant anything? And, you know, I'm a huge fan of the exit ticket. I do that in all of my classes and I get so much good information from them. And like, I develop a relationship with every single one of my students. It's not just like the students who speak up all the time, that you feel like you really get to know. And then there's like that handful of students who are like mysteries because they don't participate much, you know? Yes. The exit ticket, like, I really learn about all of them, which is amazing yeah
1: I want to say one more thing about the exit tickets is that like I also don't want to wait till the end of the semester or the middle of the semester for me to find out if students think I'm trash right (laughs) (laughs) you know I want like I want to know as we're going like week by week by week by week and they're optional right so students can opt out and say like I don't want to give my labor here and that's fine I respect that but I don't want to wait till the end of the semester for a student to tell me actually this class felt really bad to me. Mm-hmm. I care about how students feel yeah. in my classes. And there were students in the class. I taught a class on diversity and equity and kind of the design of learning environments. And mm-hmm. there were many students who sometimes felt had uncomfortable feelings in the class, given their given their social identities. Right. and. I needed to know that because I'm not necessarily gonna coddle you from feeling bad, but I want you to be able to work through why you're feeling bad and like, learn from that experience, right? And so I think that also sometimes, something I wanted to to name about active unlearning is that it's not always, well, it's not (laughs) a a comfortable uh, or always comforting process, right? And that's okay, that's actually good if you have the scaffolds you need to make sense of what it is that you're feeling. So thinking about active unlearning, there's the cognitive piece and the subject matter piece and the pedagogical piece, but there's also the affective piece, And right? And thinking about um, some of the scholarship within the learning sciences, um, thinking about Tanner Vea and Joe Cornell and folks who are doing really, impactful work around the affect and emotionality of learning Mm. I think that's really that needs to be central in the pedagogical designs that we are engaging in like how do we want students to feel in class and when we need students to feel uncomfortable to work through things how are we creating pedagogically the supports (laughs) to move students through
0: that Yeah. 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 And that is one of my questions on the exit ticket every week is how do you feel about your learning experiences? You know, and like, I, I really want to know, are you overwhelmed or do you feel, you know, kind of frustrated or do you feel confused or you do feel excited or do you, you know, all of those things because cognitive disequilibrium is uncomfortable, you know, in whatever the cause of it is it's uncomfortable and sometimes we have to be uncomfortable to learn and you know it depends on like you said the supports whatever supports are in place that's going to shape what it is that you learn from that that experience yes yeah yes yeah so this is this is so exciting i love these ideas that you have and i am definitely i really like the idea about the accountability piece because I haven't done with that with my students and I'd like to, because I worry a lot of times about the perceived power that I have, that they're afraid to say things to me because I'm the instructor, I'm professor, you know, so I want them to feel safe to criticize me, you know, to say, I didn't like the way that you did this, you know, it made me feel this way, you know, so I don't know that I've really been explicit with my students about that. And I think I need to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like what you said about that, you know, the, the classroom, how, how do you want students to feel after they leave the classroom? And if they don't, what should they do?
1: Yes, yes. And I think that the piece that you're highlighting also is how do we help students metacognitively to make sense of what they're feeling, right? Yeah. <laughs> because again, to your point, that the goal isn't—I don't think—at least the goal is for students to always feel good when they leave. Like if we're reading about racial capitalism and expropriation of land and uh, enslaved labor funny. and yeah. like yeah. you. <laughs> something, right? We might feel anger. We might feel sadness. We might feel betrayal, depending on what your social identities are, right? Your racial and ethnic identities are. We might feel confusion, right? Depending on what your racial and ethnic identities are, or even your national identities. I think something that's important to name is that race, again, of course, is a social construct, but it's also conceptualized, very different, conceptualized and experienced, very differently depending on the national context that you're in right race the ways that race and racism function or become experienced in in the body right in the United States is different than in France or in Ghana or in so thinking about the ways that we are attending to all of the particular, all of the potential feelings and emotions that are happening for happening for students as we're working through the really contradictory, and I, I'm use contradictory contradiction in the Marxist sense, right? Uh, the contradictions of our lived experiences, the contradictions of who we want to be potentially as scholars versus what the academy is set up to socialize us into becoming. Yeah. All of that stuff feels bad sometimes, but how do we provide students with space, opportunity, and tools to make sense of that for themselves in meaningful ways?
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, because that's going to shape their outlook on those experiences going forward and their actions, what they're going to do. So now I have three questions that um, I ask all of our guests. So first, what is a major barrier to learner engagement that you have experienced? White fragility. Oh, that's a good one. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> um, Can you give me an example of like an experience, like a scenario or something that that's been a challenge for you?
1: I'll do kind of a composite rather than call oh, out yeah, a
0: yeah, yeah.
1: person. <laughs> I think that sometimes people's own lived experiences might serve as a barrier for being able to take in the realities of other people's experiences. And so then what what ends up happening a lot of times is getting into an argument or a a stalemate about, well, this isn't my reality. So if it's not my reality, it's not the reality. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't happen. Yeah. It didn't happen. Yes. Um, which is again like all of these programs around like service learning and you know, whatever. And it's like, oh, we want to, if you could just walk a mile in my shoes. And it's like, no, you don't need to walk them out. I don't need to walk them out in other people's shoes. I need to listen and take seriously what people are telling me about their lived experiences mm-hmm. and trust that the people who are experiencing these things, the ways that they're making sense of it, I can learn from. Yeah. Right? And so I think that is a big barrier is, uh, and and pedagogically, that's something that I'm still learning how to deal with because I think in a lot of environments, both empirically and env- environments that I've studied, right, environments in which I've been a student, environments in which I've been a teacher, right. when issues of white fragility come up around, or I guess expressions of white fragility come up around issues of race and uh, racism, what happens generally is that the educator's experience shifts to address the issue of white fragility, which I think also, I think that there's a balance, right? You have to address kind of what's happening. But mm-hmm. then if you spend too much time there, it actually recenters whiteness in really problematic ways,
0: mm-hmm. right? Because now it's all about making you feel better because you're uncomfortable about either you personally have done or the system that you're a part of has done
1: or yes that or it's like okay you need to learn this in this moment and it's like there are other people in the space who know this all too well they live this every day so I'm gonna pause learning to let to make this one person learn something and kind of really put on the back burner other people in the space who from a embodied Stance. Know this, right? That's a pedagogical decision Mm -hmm. and a dilemma, I think, Mm -hmm. in a lot of spaces. I think about my master's thesis and um, the study that I did on intergroup dialogue. And of course, intergroup dialogue, there are um, a lot of affordances for folks participating in that space, and at the same time, space that's designed to be equity-minded, designed to have meaningful learning opportunities about race. What I found was that folks of color were actually doing the labor of teaching white folks in the space, Mm -hmm. and so what they learned was how to engage with white folks. It's not the design learning environment or the learning (laughs) objective for that space, right? That's not necessarily a generative learning environment. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't sign up for An experience if that was the learning objective that was presented, right? And so I think that that's really sometimes a barrier both for learning, but I think also a real pedagogical challenge where people are trying to figure out how do I navigate this situation? Because I want this person to learn. I don't necessarily want them to feel ostracized as a member of the learning community, but I also need to hold folks accountable,
0: Right. Yeah, and I wonder. Do you think that some of the root of this is our like positivist mindset as educators that there is a single truth, and that's what we're teaching, and because people have different lived experiences, only one of them can be true. So you know, the one that that is the dominant one in society must be the true one, and these other people's lived experiences must be like a warping of that because there's only one truth
1: Mm, that's an interesting perspective I hadn't necessarily thought about it that way I think a a few things come to mind one I think (laughs) discourse around civility and niceness Mm -hmm. in higher education is like that's it's it's actually really ironic because as we talked about earlier just how pervasive hazing (laughs) Is in yeah. the academy, but also this perception of niceness and like, we have to have civil discourse and be you know, that performance really takes away, or I think makes, makes less possible opportunities for actu- what can become actually generative conflict. Mm-hmm. Cause I think conflict can be good. I yeah, think people yeah, think yeah. conflict is a bad thing, yeah. but like, no, if you're stuck on something and you like, you fundamentally disagree. I used to hate in classes that I was taking where a professor would be like, you all are just missing each other. I heard heard and understood exactly what this person said. I fundamentally disagree with it. Don't try to make this about like, oh, y'all wrong. No, we are disagreeing and that's okay. That's okay. We can work through that. I mean, I think that there are certain things I'm not going to tolerate. Like if you, if you disagree the hum- about the humanity of particular people, it's like, we're not doing that. I'm not yeah. engaging intellectually with you about you, that.
0: You, but, you, you, uh, your perception of, of the earth is flat is, you know, um, I'm not going to engage with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, like that's not worth my yep. energy. That's not my ministry. Um, <laughs> but meaningful kind of disagreements, yeah. I think that there's ways to work through that but i think we got to call it what it is like so in in the class that I, you know in the class that i taught i would routinely say okay i think we're feeling upset i think some folks are feeling upset let's take a break or when white fragility would happen i would say i hear your comment i want to talk to you uh, either during the break or at another point about this but we're going to we're going to move to the next thing Yeah, because i want to address the student and i want to signal to the other students in the class, I peaked what happened. Yeah, yeah. I'm noticing this. I'm not necessarily gonna focus all of my energy on this right now, Yeah. but I noticed it, I'm addressing it, and we're gonna follow up about this. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think it's important also for the folks in the class who are impacted by this to also know that their, their educator, their teacher, is aware uh, and accountable to sure. addressing it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so now, now my next question is about the future. Mm-hmm. What should we start thinking about or exploring in our discussions on learner engagement that isn't fully being addressed yet?
1: I think the issue of unlearning, I think is really important um, and intentional design for what what we want folks to unlearn, but also who we want our our scholars to become Uh, and creating multiple pathways within our disciplines uh, and within and out of (laughs) the academy, potentially, if folks want to be communally engaged in ways that the academy still does not reward or value, creating opportunities for that. And I think taking the engagement piece seriously, I think is really important. Right. So, so speaking back to the point that I made at the beginning of our conversation, engagement is about relationality. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think engagement is about iteration. So like not only are you trying to engage students at one point <laughs> in the semester or one point in the term, but you're trying to create possibilities and opportunities for Relationality between you and the students, between the students, like right themselves, also. So, those are some thoughts that I have about where learner engagement can can go.
0: Okay, so if we do want to address unlearning, a lot of that unlearning causes a lot of that discomfort that we talked about, and so many people avoid that. So, how do we how do we start to work with faculty and students to understand that? that discomfort is gonna happen. And it's okay to have that discomfort. It's an important part of learning. How do we get people to lean into that discomfort in the unlearning process?
1: I think that's about culture, right? Classroom culture uh, Mm -hmm. or culture in the lab or in whatever context the, the learning is being facilitated. First, I think one thing that I try to emphasize to all of my students that are under my care is that we are all knowers and learners in the space at the same time. And that's sometimes a hard place to be in. But I commit <laughs> to honoring the fullness of all of those identities, right, at the at the same time. And then I think something I also try to do is model to students when I don't know something, right? Mm-hmm. If you ask me a question, I don't know the answer to it. I'm going to tell you, I don't know the answer to it. I'm not going to make nothing up, right? And and try to put on the facade of like the professor and I know these things, you know? The all-knowing
0: professor, yeah. Exactly.
1: It's like, no, no one's all-knowing. That's ridiculous. Um, so I say all that to say that your question makes me think about what are the norms of the classroom culture that we create for students and how do we create a culture in which students can actually be on a process to come to know in ways that doesn't require them to overthink like okay do I have my answer completely perfectly thought out in my head before I raise my hand to to answer or if the professor is like saying a citation or uh talking about a concept that I've literally never heard of in my life but I'm scared to say that and like (laughs) I think that's that's part of it
0: Hmm. okay So as we wrap up, my final question is, what is the one thing you want people to remember from our conversation about learner engagement?
1: I think the one thing that I want uh, folks to learn, educators particularly, is that I want them to learn that they teach a lot more than subject matter. Students are learning from you how to engage with higher education, right? I think about first-gen students a lot. Uh, and the things that we come to take for granted, that students should students should know that you can come to office hours whenever, and not just when you're in crisis or have a problem. Or students should know that if you come to office hours, I won't think you're stupid, or I won't think you miss are misunderstanding something. Or students should know all of these things, right? Or that The ways that we are talking about particular types of subject matter has implications for how students understand themselves understand their families understand their histories their communities and their futures in our social world i remember in my undergraduate education i studied education and social policy we would be talking about particular empirical articles and the articles themselves were so deficit-based. Um, mm-hmm. The conversations about the uh, the articles were deficit-based. And the articles could have been about my community. They could have been about the schools that I went to. And what I experienced in, cl- in classrooms, what I was learning, actually, not only what I experienced, what I was learning was that I am one exception to the rule.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or that i didn't actually belong here because this is this is the reality going back to your comment about positivism right like <laughs> this is the reality of black life or black educational life uh, and experiences within schooling contexts right and so really taking seriously not only okay what's in terms of subject matter what do we want students to learn but what do we want students to believe or come to know about what our social world is and what their role is in transforming it into what we needed to become to actually be a place where folks can thrive holistically. So those are some things that I hope people will be able to take away from the conversation that sense of accountability to students, the sense of accountability to designing intentionally students academic experiences, academic and curricular experiences in ways that a firm life and affirm possibility, not only for themselves, but all of the communities that we have the privilege of being embedded in.
0: Mm. So you're really highlighting just how influential an instructor can be. And that even if you think that you're just going in to teach your content, you're teaching so much. And it's, it's no wonder why you think of this as a privilege to have this opportunity to impact so many students. And I love to hear you say how much gratitude you have for the opportunity to work with your students, which is, is so wonderful. So Ariel Rogers, thank you so much. This was an awesome conversation. And I'm so glad that you came and shared so many wonderful ideas with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been my complete honor
0: yeah thanks we hope you have enjoyed this episode learner engagement activated is produced by the learner engagement division of the association for educational communications and technology this episode was hosted by ian fency with sound editing and production by ian fency the music is from purple planet visit the learner engagement division online at www.learnerengagement.org and find out more about the Association for Educational Communications and Technology at aect.org.